0: Greetings, and welcome to Research on Religion, a weekly podcast series devoted to the social scientific study of religion. I'm Anthony Gill, your host, professor of political science at the University of Washington, and distinguished senior fellow at Baylor University's Institute for Studies of Religion, the gracious sponsor of our podcast. We encourage you to visit our website at www.researchonreligion.org to post comments, ask questions, Access additional material related to today's program and to find out what is happening at the Institute. All right, let's begin. Last year, around this time, we featured a discussion on Buddhism and political philosophy, and at the end of that conversation, we highlighted a rather intriguing question Can artificial intelligence meditate? I suggested that such a topic was so mind blowing that we'd have to come back to it, and today I make good on that promise with our returning guest, Professor Matthew Moore, an associate professor of political science at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, where he specializes in political theory, in public law, in addition to having side interests in Buddhist thought. Professor Moore has published in academic journals such as New Political Science, Theory in Action, Philosophy and Social Criticism, Political Research Quarterly, and the Journal for, or excuse me, the Journal of Political Science Education, as well as a few other venues. He is the author of an Oxford University Press book entitled Buddhism and Political Theory, that served as a topic for our conversation last year. Recently, he wrote a conference paper entitled Meditation for Machine Consciousnesses: What Buddhism Can Tell Us About the Politics of Near Future Technologies, which is part of a broader project tentatively entitled mindfulness politics and the robopocalypse coming soon to a drive in theater near you it sounds like i love that title robopocalypse we will link back to our previous podcast with dr moore and his first book as well as many other goodies associated with our discussion today so please do check us out matthew thanks for thanks for returning to research on
1: religion well thanks so much for having me back
0: yeah this is great this is like one you can't pass up and when you start throwing around the term robo apocalypse this is this has got to be on tape somewhere so and i have to admit when i looked at your uh book on the last uh last year in the show that we had i was thinking hmm you know this guy he does political theory and buddhism that's interesting this is going to be a one-off in- interview but then you know at the end you start talking about can robots meditate and i go whoa That is a really, really cool topic. Where did you come up with this question? How did it germinate?
1: Well, it's a good question. Uh, You know, initially I thought that it was going to be a completely different project and that it wasn't going to have anything to do with Buddhism at all, that it was going to be about what I'm calling near-future technologies, which are technologies that haven't been developed yet and that we may never develop but that we think maybe are possible and that I have a variety of concerns about. But as I started working on that project, I realized that the Buddhism kept creeping back in um, and that I couldn't really finish the project the way I wanted to without getting back into the kind of Buddhist perspective on it.
0: Yeah, we're going to follow up on that because you weave insights in and out of this discussion of artificial intelligence and all this kind of stuff uh, throughout the the conference paper that you wrote. And it, it's really intriguing. It's, it's a challenging work for me, not knowing much about Buddhism. So we'll work our way through it. But I think the first thing that we need to do is to talk about these Near-future technologies, uh, what, what, what does this all include in this bundle? And my other question, you, you said it might never arise, but the word near is in there. How near are we to these near-future technologies?
1: Yeah, well, it's a good question. And honestly, part of why I'm taking up this project, which is still in a pretty early phase, is to try to answer some of those questions for myself. So the kinds of technologies I have in mind are uh, what I would call strong AI strong artificial intelligence. So today, when we talk about artificial intelligence, we mostly mean what I would call machine learning. So those are programs that are capable of um, being given a sort of initial set of instructions, and then going on and modifying their instructions as they go, which sounds, I don't know, uh, uncanny. But in fact, when you look at it at a programming level, it it isn't really that complicated. Uh, So for example, there's a Google neural network that. they basically said, go find patterns and pictures, and it taught itself to find cats. And it's great at finding pictures of cats on the Internet. Um, and that's a great example of how we can get machines to do kind of self-reinforced learning and self, uh, self-reprogramming, but it's not consciousness. You know, that's not sentience or self-awareness. So strong AI would be uh, artificial intelligence that was sentient or self-aware. So that's one big one. A second one is uh, the idea of had nanobots. So, these would be very small machines, uh, you know on the sort of a molecular scale, that were capable of doing some useful work. So, uh, they could, for example, fabricate products uh, they could conceivably be injected into the bloodstream where they could kill pathogens or repair uh, damage. Uh, the idea being that they could uh, be kind of in a sense a universal universal machines and one idea about nanobots is that because they're so small, for them to do anything useful, you'd have to have lots and lots of them. And to have lots and lots of them, probably the easiest way to do that would be to let them replicate themselves, so to have them be self-replicating. But that leads to a whole series of potential problems. Um, a third, sort of allegedly near-future technology, is whole brain emulation. And this is the idea that we could find some way to either uh, replicate consciousness on a machine platform, or even possibly upload someone's consciousness into a machine platform, uh, and in that sense, sort of turn a person into an AI. And uh, people who have, you know, are interested in this kind of thing have probably heard of the idea of the singularity associated uh, very closely with the, the thinker Ray Kurzweil. And uh, Kurzweil's no fool, right? I mean, he uh, currently works for Google doing machine learning stuff, Uh, But he uh, was central in creating optical character recognition. He also did a lot of very early and important technology with uh, the music synthesizer and has done a lot of stuff with uh, reading machines for the blind. So he's he's a a really well-respected technologist and thinker. And the idea of the singularity is that at some point in the future, computers will be so powerful Uh, and our understanding of human cognition will have become so advanced that in essence people and machines will merge Uh, and that at some point and he uh, is arguing I think the most recent prognostication I've seen from him is that that will happen sometime between 2030 and 2050 Uh, so you know knock wood within our lifetime
0: and some of us uh, might be knocking wood me i'm <laughs> knocking down the door because this is you know i grew up in the 60s and 70s and we had a lot of dystopian science fiction movies and you know, you're watching this as a kid in 1974 or something and you go ah, you know this stuff is just wild imagination and stuff and now we're talking 2030 20, 2050 20, I, I i'm probably still gonna be alive then i'm like oh. let, let me ask you this um a lot of these things are neat right they promise you know the nanobots curing diseases and stuff. So there's a lot of upsides on this, but there's also some downsides. Re- review kind of what the general thinking of the you know, field is when it comes to the upsides and downsides of this kind of stuff.
1: Sure. And one thing I should say is that there isn't agreement in the field about whether these technologies are even possible. Okay. Right? So it may turn out that we're uh, like we did in the bad you know, sci-fi movies of the 70s worrying about abstractions that turn out for one reason or another not to be possible. And so what I hope to do in the the larger project is address some of those arguments, uh, mostly just to lay them out for political scientists. who so I think in general probably aren't going to be as familiar with them and take them out of the more technical realm and make them hopefully more, more accessible and popular. Um, but, you know, assuming for the moment that they are possible, the upsides are, obviously pretty exciting, right? Uh, you know, uh, If we had nanobots, they could conceivably build anything uh, from you know, in, what they can find in the environment. They could cure any disease. Uh, if we had artificial intelligence, it would make today's computers look like toys. Whole-brain emulation holds out the possibility of immortality uh, and also of extending our uh, mental capacities way beyond what our, our poor old organic brains can do. But the, the, the dangers are in some ways actually all kind of the same. They share a common set of dangers. And the biggest danger is the possibility that these technologies will get out of our control. Mm. So take uh, the, the classic example, right, the strong artificial intelligence or sentient artificial intelligence. So a sentient artificial intelligence would be capable of reprogramming itself. Uh, So we could program in whatever kinds of, uh, you know, Asimovian rules of of, uh, laws of robotics or other kinds of ethical routines, Uh, but uh, an AI that's capable of making its own choices would be capable of reprogramming itself or programming, you know, a successor uh, uh, artificial intelligence that didn't have those kinds of restrictions. And so I think there's a real danger that if such a thing existed or came into existence, uh, that it would very quickly become a kind of independent uh, intelligence, an independent entity over which we would have no effective control. And there's a, a really good book, actually, that came out last year called "Superintelligence" by the thinker Nick Bostrom, teaches at Oxford or is a researcher at Oxford, uh, who, on the one hand, is a great enthusiast for a lot of these technologies. But in superintelligence, it goes sort of systematically through all the various ways in which we might try to control them. And to my reading anyway, ends up concluding that there really is no plausible way to control them. Uh, And that if if, if an artificial intelligence were created, uh, it would become an independent entity that we would have to then cope with.
0: Now, you mentioned something here that rings a bell from my old reading days of science fiction back in the 1970s, and that was Asimov's uh, Rules of Robots. I think that was with uh, iRobot series, Mm -hmm. a series of Mm -hmm. mysteries in in the future. Um, Talk about what those are, just to review for folks, and review for me, too.
1: Sure. So uh, I think Asimov has these three laws uh, for robotics, and if I remember correctly, and it's, uh, it's not stuff that I focus on that much, um, one is that you know, a robot uh, will not, through uh, in action or inaction, allow uh, a human to come to harm uh, and that they will, in fact, you know, go, go out of their way to protect humans and, and not do anything that would, that would harm one. And uh, that, in, sort of in principle, seems like a great idea, right? I mean, of course, that, that represents a, a kind of um, deontological ethics for robots that we would want to try to program into an artificial intelligence. But I think the big challenge, and, and this is something that Bostrom and, and other you know, folks who are worried about this have looked at, is, again, that uh, you know, a human being can't reprogram its moral consciousness, but an artificial intelligence can. And unless somehow we were able to create such a, a kind of internal barrier against doing such reprogramming, such self-reprogramming, it's really hard to see how any kind of um, in internal barrier like that would be effective.
0: So in addition to these robots getting out of control, and let's say we, we figure out the Asimov rule of robots and everything is okay there, there's still some other issues that might come up as downsides to this artificial intelligence revolution, such as unemployment, inequality, and a few other things. Talk about those.
1: Yeah, that's right. So uh, this, <laughs> this is sort of the um, robopocalypse light. So uh, the the, bad, the really bad version, of course, is that um, artificial intelligence, or nanobots, or whole brain emulation, uh, or you know, these various kinds of technologies, kind of escape from our ability to control them. Either in this control, either in the sense of uh, control them through social policy, right, in this, uh, so that we're ensuring that humans are using them in an appropriate way, or uh, to control them in a, in a literal technical sense, right, that, that they're simply not under our control at all. So that's the, that's the bad version of the robo apocalypse. The slightly less bad version of the robe apocalypse is that the, the technology remains under our control, but as is true with other technology, right, uh, the degree to which people profit from it is uh, unequal. Some people get a lot more benefit out of, out of them than others, and that that results in various kinds of uh, bad social outcomes. So a couple that I've seen, that, and there's been some interesting research done on this, and an economist, disagree, uh, sometimes even with themselves, (laughs) between one year and the next about what's likely. Um, But so, think back for a second, right? So uh, since the uh, beginning of the Industrial Revolution, there's been a tremendous uh, transformation in technology in our society. And if you think about it, in 1800, virtually every human being uh, spent their working hours producing food. And today, in the United States, we have somewhere between 1% and 2% of people are employed in the the production of sort of food as a raw material. So the question is, why don't we have 99% unemployment, right? Why is it that that technological change hasn't resulted in everyone uh, having nothing to do? And the answer is that as technology makes one field more efficient, it allows people to A, have time available, but B, also to have money available, right? As, as production of, say, potatoes gets more efficient, the amount of money you need to spend on potatoes from your income goes down, and you then have some free cash that you could use to buy something else, and then that turns out that you use that to buy the product that someone who used to grow potatoes is now making in, their sp- in the time that they now have free. And that every technological revolution up to now has worked in that same way, that people are displaced for a while, Um, But that the uh, resulting efficiencies means that there is now a new opportunity and resources available for uh, kind of a new industry to bloom. And the fear with uh, kind of uh, the robots under our control but replacing large amounts of human labor is that, one, it would replace lots of different kinds of human labor all at once Uh, and that that might uh, be sort of too many unemployed people to reabsorb easily. And then a second concern is that it may um, result in kind of unequal distribution of benefits. So one interesting example is uh, older people tend to get more of their income and and have more of their wealth based in investments, whereas younger people tend to get more of their income from employment. If robots tend to displace labor, that's going to mean that the people who own shares in businesses that are uh, benefiting from that efficiency will tend to get wealthier and wealthier whereas people who are unable to find work will get poorer and poorer, and there will be, in essence, a huge transfer of wealth uh, intergenerationally, uh, which will be a kind of an interesting problem. But that the older people will get much wealthier, and the younger people will stay relatively poorer. And, again, uh, economists aren't sure really which of these various scenarios is most likely to work out, but I'm uh, part of what I'm interested in doing in my project is, again, just kind of sketching out that literature for, uh, both political scientists and maybe a broader public who haven't had time to go through all that and kind of think it through uh, as a way to pose the question, what are we, what are we risking? You know, what's, what's at stake here and what kinds of decisions do we need to make?
0: Yeah, as, as you talk about this too, I'm thinking about how the the Roomba has displaced my uh, sweeping. Um, yeah. you know, and I and I think that remember the movie Wall E, where you had all the robots doing everything and were just laying around and getting fat. Um right. You know, watching cats ride around on Roombas or something like that. But yeah, it has some it has some really kind of serious consequences to worry about. I, I should note before we dive into you know what Buddhism uh, can can tell us about this stuff, you actually have some uh, skin in the game, so to speak. Uh, in terms of this, you're, you're into robotics, right?
1: It's true. I, I mean, and I, I hesitate to say that publicly only because my level of knowledge and skill are so <laughs> pathetic. Uh, but I'm, you know, I have young kids, and uh, they're interested in electronics and robotics and technology, and mostly so that I could not be just utterly ignorant uh, and unable to explain things to them. I started to get interested and involved myself. And so uh, I do have... Uh, I've made a, a, a bunch of different robots, but I've got sort of one that I'm working on at the moment. Uh, and I've been fascinated by it. You know, it's, it's super enjoyable and interesting. I'm a political theorist. I don't really use that part of my brain very much. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's been nice to get back there and uh, be doing some of that kind of engineering thinking. Um, so, uh, you know, in my the, the very small amounts of spare time that I have, I'm trying to figure out how to get my robot's laser rangefinder working, <laughs> so that I can get it to be making three D maps as it moves through its environment and figure out where it is on the map. Uh, and then, do useful things, hopefully, like bring me a beer uh, there not you quite go there yet? yeah uh, that
0: that hoping. that would be useful that would be useful yeah. technology i 'd be willing to lay down to our uh, yeah. robotic overlords for that one i 'm just uh, kind of curious on this too when when you 're doing this and you 're building these things, is there any uh tendency to to reify these or to kind of see them as you know people it 's a robot it 's moving around kind of kind of like we do with animals and other things mm.
1: so uh, <laughs> Uh, not for the very low sophistication stuff that okay. I build, yeah, okay. but, there, but there definitely is for other, uh, for you know, more sophisticated robots. I have a student who is just completing a senior thesis on uh, kind of the legal status of artificial intelligences, whether they'll have legal rights, uh, whether they'll be subject to legal liability and punishment. And one of the studies that she came across uh, that in her research that I've been learning about mostly through, through reading her project uh, has to do with a researcher who made um, robotic right? so kind of little stuffed animal uh, robots. And uh, you know, I'm, I, if I understand correctly, they, they didn't do a whole lot. right? They maybe kind of squirmed around a little bit and maybe purred if you pet them or something like that. And uh, after letting people bond with them for a little while, the researchers then instructed the people to destroy them uh, in a kind of a violent way, I think with hammers or something like that. Uh, and the people, the test subjects, basically refused to do it. Uh, and there's this whole series of interesting ways that they dealt with it. In one case, um, a group decided to sacrifice one of the pleosaurs so they could save the rest. Um, in another, they insisted on taking the batteries out of the pleosaurs so that they wouldn't feel it when they were destroyed. Whoa. Um, and, you know, these are things they, they knew that they were robots. Yeah. And they knew that they weren't sentient. They knew they had no capacity to feel pain but in a way it didn't really matter right because the you know if you see something that is capable of independent movement and that's furry and cute and it purrs when you pet it you're going to think it's an animal right you're going to think it's um, that it's a, k- a kind of moral um, it's subject to some kind of moral standards a- and i think that as we get increasingly humanoid robots that's going to be a bigger and bigger and bigger problem yeah. and that so we're we're going to be a tempted to attribute to them a level of kind of moral agency and humanity that they don't possess. And, and in some ways, and I'm certainly not an expert on this issue, but you know, the, the famous Turing test created by Alan Turing about who, how would you know when a computer had become artificially conscious, and his answer was basically when it could fool a human interlocutor about whether it was human, uh, you know, that it could give persuasive answers to natural language questions such that you couldn't tell whether it was a person or not. And on the one hand, we typically talk about that as if that's a kind of standard, right, as if that's a a test in the sense of it kind of proves something. But I I have to say, I think that there's actually another way to read it, which is that that's the point at which we will no longer be able to tell when we're being fooled. Uh, And that it's not really a test about the robots or the artificial intelligences at all. It's actually a test about human psychology. and that—that's the moment when we simply won't know better.
0: Well, one of the things that you do and bring into this entire discussion is Buddhism. Uh, when we talked to you about that last year, Buddhism and political theory was a fascinating discussion. Tell us how Buddhism can help us sort out this situation.
1: Well, so and this is—you know—like I said, I, I, initially I thought that this wasn't going to be a Buddhism project, but it kind of snuck its way back in. And I think that Buddhism can help us do three different kinds of things uh, in, in, this, in relationship to these alleged near-future technologies. The first kind of thing is that it can help us understand why we're developing them. The second is that it can help us clarify some of what's at stake in the decision to develop them. And then the third, I think, is to offer us a strategy about how to make a conscious and sustainable decision about what kind of relationship we want to have with these technologies, whether we want to develop them or not, and if we do develop them, uh, how we want to use them.
0: So let's go ahead and walk through those then and and start off with why. Why are we doing this?
1: (laughs) So, uh, and this requires a little bit of of backstory. So, you know, I have a nine-year-old who uh, identifies as a Buddhist himself and is very eager to to learn about Buddhism. And so I've been, over the last couple of years, been working on ways to explain Buddhism to him in relatively simple ways. And one of the formulas that I've hit on that's been really helpful for me is the idea that every unhappy experience you will ever have has the same cause, that it's always about a conflict between what your brain wants and what the world gives you. Uh, And so whether that's frustration, fear, anger, uh, you know, uh, sorrow, whatever it is, it's always ultimately a mismatch between what your brain desires and what the world provides. And when that happens, you have three basic choices. You can keep suffering, you can try to change the world, or you can try to change your mind. And that's really pretty much it. Mm -hmm. Uh, the Buddhist, I think, says you're, you're perfectly welcome to keep suffering if you would like, uh, but that seems kind of foolish. Uh, sometimes it really is appropriate to try to change the world. If you're hungry, you should eat. If you're tired, you should sleep. Uh, you know, um, if, there, uh, if there's, I don't know, whatever, uh, a forest fire, you should probably try to put it out if you can. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, many times, and, and I think from the Buddhist perspective, most of the time, uh, in fact, what you need to do is change your mind, that you need to figure out a way to calmly uh, live sort of in equanimity with the way that the world actually is. And certainly with the most important sources of sorrow, like mortality, uh, old age, and illness, those are things that we, at least from the Buddhist perspective, simply need to learn how to live with rather than try to change. So I, I'm sorry, go
0: ahead. No, I was going to say, yeah, that, that's really important because once you start getting to these, these big existential questions, that, it does create a lot of sorrow for individuals, right? You hate to see your, your parents grow old and, and, and pass away, and, and I'm starting to get old, and doctors are telling me this, that, and the other thing, and that's, that's tough to deal with.
1: Yeah. No, absolutely. I, I mean, and I think every, every faith tradition has some... It is in some way kind of centrally focused on those questions. You know, what, what happens uh, to us after we die? Why is there suffering on Earth? Uh, how could a, a kind and loving and um, omnipotent God allow there to be evil and, and bad things here? mean, I think every faith tradition tries to answer some of those big existential questions. And one of the things that's interesting about Buddhism's answer is that it says, you don't really need a cosmology you don't really need a kind of metaphysical answer. What you need to do is to learn how to how to accept it mm-hmm.
0: and and that is where this artificial intelligence kind of has its benefits right there's some things that you know, these nanobots for instance they they can go into your bloodstream or pancreas and clean out cancerous cells okay that that's you know one way we can do something about the world and and that but some of these other you know, issues
1: of, of mortality. Those, mm-hmm. I don't know. <laughs> well, so, you know, I, I think of another piece about how I think Buddhism can be helpful. So, uh, last quarter, I was teaching a class on non-Western political thought, and I trotted out for my students this this formula about you know there being these, the one source of unhappiness and the three ways of coping with it. And the students asked a completely reasonable question, which neither I nor my nine-year-old had quite gotten to yet, which is, how do you know which one to do? Yeah. <laughs> do? yeah. How do you know when it's time to change the world, and how do you know when it's time to change your mind instead? And, uh, you know, I had to spend some time thinking about that, but I, I think I, I did hit on it, and, and it actually was very helpful for me in showing a kind of unique approach to social analysis and political analysis that Buddhism offers. And the answer is that you choose the path that appears to uh, in, involve the least suffering. And... Uh, For kind of classical Buddhism, because it believes in karma and reincarnation, it's always true that evil you do to someone else ultimately redounds to yourself. And so in that way, other people's suffering and your own suffering uh, always move in the same direction. And so if you can reduce your own suffering, you can reduce other people's suffering and vice versa. I think for many modern Buddhists, especially in the West, uh, you know, in the same way that Cafeteria Catholics pick and choose among the doctrines. Uh, so I think cafeteria Buddhists say, "Well, um, karma, reincarnation—those are really metaphors, right? We're, we're not really talking about being literally reincarnated. Uh, but what we're really, what we mean is that if you're a jerk, it'll come back to bite you eventually, uh, and that you know, sort of what goes around comes around." And I think that that makes it a little bit harder to make the, the same ethical case that Buddhism tries to make. Uh, although I think. You know, maybe we can do that. That's one of the things I need to to get into into more depth as I work on this project. But the, the upshot of that is you choose the thing that leads to the least suffering. And that focus on suffering helps us see that from a Buddhist perspective, when you're looking at a range of possible choices, one of the things you should ask yourself is, why are we doing this? And in particular, what kind of suffering are we trying to avoid? That, uh, I think the sort of Buddhist perspective on human, act, human psychology is always uh, there is some kind of suffering that is either driving your behavior or, the, or that you're trying to avoid through the behavior. And so I got interested in the question of what kind of suffering are we trying to avoid through developing these allegedly possible near future technologies?
0: Discuss that a little bit in, in, in the context of, of what we're trying to do here, because one one thing that comes to mind, and again, you know, if we have a, a new medical technology that makes wounds heal faster and less painfully, yeah, we do that. Kind of, I kind of get that. But when it gets to some of these folks saying, "Yeah, I want to upload my brain to be immortal uh, because mortality is suffering," um, you, for me, that that's it's hard for me to fathom that because, as I grow older and as I see my parents grow older you know i 'm starting to come to terms with that whole mortality thing, and you know I guess in in a you know i 'm not a Buddhist but in some kind of buddhist way i'm I'm changing my mind to the world that okay there 's mortality um maybe I was really scared of that when I was in my thirties, and now that i 'm in my fifties um, you know it's not that big a worry so what i mean how do we know what to do and to, to to ask the questions your students did
1: mm. Well, I, yeah, I, and I think it is helpful to think about, you know, what what are the various kinds of suffering that we're trying to avoid through these technologies. And so, one, just as you point out, is the suffering of illness and injury, right? And obviously, I think I'm I'm, I'm willing to sign up for the notion that if we had technology that could improve uh, illness and injury dramatically, that would make us uh, much better than often we are now, and that that would be a, a wholly good thing. Um, you know, I, I'm all in favor of. Uh, vaccines, I'm all in favor of antibiotics, I'm all in favor of uh, us having various kinds of, uh, you know, drugs for sedation for surgery. Uh, And for that matter, uh, you know, sort of a personal note, I I suffer from Parkinson's disease, and I am, I think, in the middle of uh, planning to have uh, electrodes uh, implanted this year that would stimulate a part of my brain to help reduce the symptoms of tremor and slowness of movement. And so in that way, I'm, I'm willing to go, I think, further than, than your average person in letting technology really become part of who I am uh, to help with those kinds of medical problems. So that's one kind of suffering that we're trying to avoid. And there are some similar kinds of things, right? Uh, there's lots of work that's tedious and dangerous, and I would be perfectly happy to let robots do uh, and free up human beings to do uh, safer but also more interesting and more gratifying things. Uh, there is material... Uh, we could. But there is uh, not everyone in the world has all the things that it would be uh, sort of ideal for them to have, and maybe being able to produce things more efficiently or more quickly or more safely uh, would mean that we could have greater material abundance and greater equality. That sounds great to me too. Um, that, in that sense, those are I think kind of the easy ones, right? Those are the low, the low hanging fruit of what's kind of the suffering we're trying to avoid. W- one level up the tree, I, I think is. I don't know quite what the right way to put this, is um, there are, there, there's a certain set of fears or worries that it seems to me are implicit in a lot of this technology, and one of them is just the fear of kind of not fulfilling our potential as a species, you know, that, we, there, are, that there are things we don't know and technological possibilities we haven't discovered yet. And that there's something painful, and I think even to some people, sort of offensive intellectually, about the idea that we would just leave some of those things on the table, uh, and that we would, and that you know, if the if the sun went nova tomorrow, that there would be something sort of tragic about the fact that we had not yet gotten to more complete knowledge and more complete technological development. Um, and I think in there too, you know, there's the you know the idea of people who would like. Um, to, to make some mark in history and who feel that they, they have not yet had the opportunity to do that. Or, or even further, that it would be tragic if, um, no matter how developed it becomes, human civilization were, were wiped out by a rogue comet or the sun-going nova or whatever, and that we had not um, spread our intelligence and our ourselves out into the stars, either by physical colonization or by um, you know, kind of uh, information technology and tr- transmitting our intelligence out into the universe, and so that's a kind of middle level that I think is probably less familiar to most people. And then at the top, I think in some ways, kind of the most important kinds of suffering, although and these are again familiar, but um, but in a way more existential, are, are things like uh, illness, mortality, and death. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> that uh, at some point, at the moment at least, we're all going to die. And the question is, is that something? That we should simply learn to accept, or is that um, a kind of uh, you know making a virtue of a necessity? And that that and that if we could have technology that could make us immortal or practically immortal or even simply live for vastly longer, um, sh- should we pursue it? And, and when people say, "Well, you know, I'm not sure I want to live for other, forever," I- is that really just? I say hundred thousand years of human inability speaking, uh, and that when if we could really get that kind of technology going, maybe we should embrace it. And I think that's the those are the kinds of suffering that I think are active here.
0: Yeah, no, I, I, I can fully understand that last one too, because I, you know, again, I'm I'm adjusting my my mind to the issue of mortality more and more as as the years progress here, and even even things to the extent of, you know, what if we could eradicate all poverty and all pain and all those kind of things? I'm actually getting to the point of of saying, you know, maybe that shouldn't be a goal. And uh, that that sounds really odd because, you know, I should, you know, wish the most pleasure on people and eliminate as much suffering as possible. But there's that old saying that, you know, if, if you have nothing but sunshine, it, it just leads to a desert. You really don't understand life. Life living is, is also about dying, and pleasure is about understanding what pain is. And so I, it's a tough philosophical question.
1: Yeah, and I guess I'm open to, um, you know, I'm fairly open to, uh, eradicating poverty and yeah. uh, you know even substantial inequality, um, but yeah, I get more hesitant when we start talking about uh, trying to achieve immortality, or uh, you know really suffering from the idea that humanity won't colonize uh, all of the universe with its with its intelligence.
0: Yeah, I, I should let listeners know I'm not. Arguing against eradicating poverty, but it's you know my model is that the the utopia where everything is pleasant all the time. I I don't know if I'd want to live in that world. But uh, the next thing that you do in this paper, and this is where the whole issue of uh, can robots meditate and be perceptive. The question is, what does Buddhism tell us about what is at stake?
1: Yeah. So, and again, this is sort of where uh, the, the Buddhism kept creeping back in. So uh, one of the questions I asked, and, and to be honest, initially it was just a little bit of a smart aleck question that I thought would be interesting to chew on, uh, but it, it has ended up being pretty productive for me, was, so if we created an artificial intelligence, or if we uploaded a human consciousness into a machine base, would it meditate? And um, I, for the moment, I'm finding the, that whole brain emulation question a little bit more fruitful, because I think it's a, just a little bit more tangible for us. So, uh, so, Tony, let's imagine that we're a- able to upload your consciousness. We can take a snapshot of it just now, and we upload it into a computer. Um, what what would happen, and uh, would, would you meditate? And to answer that question, I want to take one sort of half step back and talk for a second about why we meditate and how we meditate, and then we'll come back to, to whether uh, Robo, Robo Tony would meditate. So meditation is, and I don't think we don't often say some of this because it's so obvious and so implicit but meditation is for creatures that are capable of a high degree of self-awareness but are not habitually very self-aware so we have this whole realm and whether we want to call it the subconscious or some folks call it the infraconscious but we have this whole realm of possible self-awareness that is usually just below the level of actual conscious awareness and a lot of what happens in meditation is sitting down and being quiet long enough to see that stuff bubble up. And it's a very common experience that, you know, you're sitting there, you think you're doing a great job meditating, and then you realize that your fists are clenched or that you're breathing in a completely irregular way, uh, you know, very, maybe very quickly or very shallowly, uh, or you realize that the, the muscles in your stomach are tense or you realize that you uh, can't stop thinking about something that's on your mind. And that part of the point of meditation is having those experiences, is discovering what you're obsessed with or discovering the kind of tension that that you're holding in your body. And so we are learning things from that kind of somatic feedback um, and learning things about what, what seems to kind of always come back into our consciousness. And ideally as you practice over time, you're able to accept those things, right? That you, you can't necessarily directly change them. Uh, you know, there's nothing like uh, getting yourself all worked up about how tense you are. Uh, you, it, that's never going to work as a strategy for relaxing. So the, the goal is not even to try to change those things so much as simply say, oh, you know, I see that my fists are clenched or, oh, I see that I'm really obsessed about the fact that I need to file my taxes or, oh, you know, I'm having those thoughts again or I'm, I'm thinking about that image again. And to accept what we can't change and accept what we can't control. Uh, and that hopefully over a long period of time, those obsessions and those tensions lose some of their strength, right? That, that you, by accepting them, say, okay, you know, now, now that's happening. Uh, you have sort of a famous um, meditation in, instruction, which is, that for every experience, you simply say in your mind, "Now this," you know, "Okay, now this." Uh, that by doing that, we're able to struggle less against the world. Uh, it, the Buddha uh, teaches that pain is inevitable. Right when you, when the Buddha stubs his toe against the bed, it hurts. But that suffering, which is basically the stories we tell ourselves about the pain and and that we add on to the pain with, is optional. Uh, And some contemporary teachers uh, have a little formula that suffering is uh, pain times resistance. And that part of the point of meditation is to learn to stop resisting. And so the interesting question is, if we upload your consciousness, would you still do that? And one of the things that I think is worth thinking about is whether you would still have that kind of somatic feedback and that kind of infraconscious or subconscious experience. So if we upload your brain to a computer, all kinds of information that you currently get from your body either would disappear or would have to be faked. So I uh, th- th- have in mind things like, uh, you know, right now, if you're wearing a short sleeve shirt or you have your sleeves rolled up, your, the skin on your arms is sending information about the air temperature up to your brain, or all the little hairs on your body are sending information about whether they're being rubbed the wrong way. And you have a a feeling of gravity pulling you down, right? So if you're sitting, you can feel a pulling on your butt and on your thighs and on your feet. And uh, we have a sense of uh, ambient noises and all that kind of stuff. I mean, a huge, huge amount of of that kind of stuff that we can be aware of. And then, of course, there's a a much lower level of things where our brain is monitoring the status of our digestion and our breathing rate. Um, It's paying attention to the presence of various kinds of hormones. Uh, and other chemicals in our bloodstream, what's the oxygen saturation, right? But all those kinds of things are providing feedback to the brain. And so if you, your brain now suddenly, your consciousness was suddenly in a computer, either all that information would stop um, and, and, and they would have to find out whether that means that you would freak out or whether you could actually live without it, or if you would freak out, right, if you can't live without it, they would have to fake all of it. And, you know, I'm assuming if if we can figure out how to put your consciousness on a computer, I think we can figure out how to fake room temperature, right? So I'm not too worried about that as a technical problem. But I think it actually becomes an interesting kind of spiritual problem, which is that, so imagine that we give you the sensation of having, you know, deep, regular breaths, but that doesn't actually have anything to do with your emotional state and it doesn't have anything to do with whether you're perseverating about some problem. And so all of that somatic feedback that today is so central to learning how to meditate, and in fact the point of meditating, would would now become as meaningless as the ticking of a clock. And I think that that could conceivably make it difficult or even impossible for us to learn to meditate and to use meditation as a way to come to understand what's happening in our minds.
0: That is absolutely fascinating. I can see this with the uploading, the uh, the WBE as it's called, uh, with my consciousness now being in a machine across the room or something, and and obviously with artificial intelligence, they never have those experiences to begin with—the breathing or the air temperature or the cat biting your toes at any given point in time, right. yeah. um, you know, which is a common occurrence around here. So yeah, it, it doesn't seem like robots could meditate, and is that a limitation on the robots, or what?
1: Well, so that's the question, that yeah. you can imagine someone saying, well, then isn't that instant nirvana? Yeah. Right? Yeah. Haven't, yeah. haven't you suddenly transcended? Um, and, uh, you know, I, I take that actually seriously as a, as a possibility. Um, I don't think so. And, uh, and this gets in, in another chapter that I'm hoping to include, in what I, you know, I hope will turn out to be a book out of all this. Uh, I want to talk about Nietzsche and what he, whether Nietzsche would be a singulitarian, whether Nietzsche would be in favor of the merger of humanity and machines. And my hunch is that the answer is no. Uh, and so the kind of tentative title that I have in mind for the chapter is False Transcendence. Uh, the idea being that for Nietzsche, the, the issue is not where you are in terms of your capacity. The issue is how you got there, uh, and that the issue is did you, have you fashioned a self um, and have you fashioned a way of being in the world? And that if you could simply, you know, flip a switch and no longer have the kinds of obsessions or concerns that you've had, um, that that rather than representing the kind of, I don't know what, apotheosis of, of humanity, right, rather than representing kind of the perfection of humanity, would instead represent a kind of sacrifice of all of everything that's interesting about humanity. Uh, And that all that kind of struggle and effort would would simply disappear. And that we might become very efficient computers, but that we would lose uh, emotional depth. uh, We would lose the the need to struggle. uh, We would lose uh, kind of character in that sense.
0: Yeah, I think this is what I was talking about a little while ago when i say you know to have that utopia where nothing is ever wrong you you lose your sense of, of of what it's like to live right with no death you would think you'd be very much alive, but I'm almost thinking no, you wouldn't be alive. And this for me, I'm, I'm learning a lot here now that you know, Buddhism. We always have this kind of stereotypical, popular image that the you know the ultimate Buddhist is one who completely lets go and is is free flowing out there, just like they a machine consciousness would be. But it's really not that. It's not that suffering goes away. It's just suffering is is dealt with in a different way.
1: That yeah, that's right. And I think that's a Common, uh, you know, sort of misperception, yeah, that it's that somehow, right? If you're the Buddha and you stub your toe, it doesn't hurt, right. or, or even that you don't resent it, yeah. <laughs> but, but rather that, uh, of course, it does hurt, and you may even resent it, but that you're also then able to say, uh, you know, okay, I see what's going on here, and not get stuck there, uh, and that's really the the danger that the the suffering is the getting.
0: So this clarifies the issue of the humanity or lack thereof of artificial intelligence, singularity, web-based uh, emulation or web brain emulation, whatever that thing is. You also mentioned that Buddhism offers a strategy or a pathway for helping us to make decisions about where to go next and as political scientists we always kind of come back to policy issues well what then so that's my question to you what then what now
1: mm. so and and actually this is the the camel's nose that got the buddhism back into the project um and so it seems to me and you know and plenty of other people who've, who've written and thought about this uh, more more deeply than i have that there are really basically three possible responses to these potential dangers from these allegedly near future technologies. So one is that we just embrace them and hope it all works out. You know, we sort of embrace becoming posthuman and see what that, see how that goes. The second is that we try to um, get the good and avoid the bad. Right. So we develop the technologies, but we try to use them in a responsible way. Uh, so that they don't escape our control and they don't have the kind of negative social consequences that, that we might worry about. And the third option is that we don't develop them, right, that we simply choose not to pursue these technologies. Um, it's sort of interesting, you know, in, in recent news, the uh, this week we've had the release of the WannaCry uh, ransomware virus, uh, which appears to have been based on Uh, 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 a software exploit that was developed by the National Security Administration. And one of the things that journalists have been saying, kind of in response to this, is, you know, it's one of the dangers of developing malware uh, as a state actor is that it's relatively easy, it's relatively hard to develop, but it's very easy to steal. And once you've stolen it, it, you can't put the genie back in the bottle. And um, for those same reasons, in fact, the U.S. stopped uh, its biological weapons research, right? We stopped doing biological weapons research because um, it's very difficult to develop, a, uh, you know, a kind of weaponizable pathogen, but once you've got one, it's very easy to steal and it's very easy to reproduce. And once that's gone, you know, once, once your adversaries have it, you can't take it back. Uh, and so that's I think the kind of concern that people have when they say really what we ought to do here is simply not develop this technology at all and I I have to say at least so far in my thinking about this that seems like the most plausible strategy Uh, even though to myself that sounds naive Mm -hmm. uh, it's it's hard to see how either the other options is going to be better and um, if that's true then the question that I ask myself is what, what, what kind of society would we need to live in that could forbear developing that technology? What kind of people would we need to be uh, and what would need to change? And it seems to me that on an individual level, we would want people to be um, capable of making kind of dispassionate, thoughtful decisions that have some insight into themselves and their own motivations and their own habits to be able to uh, live according to principle even when that comes at some cost and some displeasure, um, and people who were able to see the value of, uh, you know, making sacrifices to get the benefits of cooperating with others. And that then on the kind of uh, social level or civilizational level, you know, we would want to try to, um, what's the right way to put it, we would want to try to minimize the obvious sources of social conflict and anger um, and hatred. And so we would want to try to minimize grinding poverty. We would want to try to minimize uh, you know, inequality that, that is galling to many people. We would want to try to minimize uh, un- unremediated injustices because those are reasons that people would say, well, you know, maybe I will release this pathogen. Maybe I will release this virus. You know, one thing that I've been thinking about in the last few years is uh, has to do with kind of internet trolls and, you know, people who uh, purposefully either uh, damage other people's you know, electronic stuff or who are using electronic media to basically make other people unhappy on purpose. And uh, initially the thought that occurred to me, you know, being a political scientist was, well, what can we do about trolls? And actually, slowly, my thinking became that that was the wrong question and that the right question was, why are there trolls? What is it about our society that makes trolls possible? And what would a society look like in which trolls didn't exist, in which no one was tempted to become a troll? And that actually, to me, feels like the same question as what would a society look like in which we could say, here's this potentially really interesting technology. Let's not develop it. Um, And it turns out that uh, Buddhism, both on a personal level and on a political level, is aiming at exactly those same goals. How can we make people who are capable of living mindfully, and how can we make a society that manages to avoid and minimize the sort of obvious sources of social conflict and anger and antisocial behavior? And so, for me, Buddhism offers a, a uniquely helpful perspective on how we might be able to manage not developing the technology that might lead to the Robopocalypse.
0: Some interesting thoughts there. And I understand this idea in the context of the biological weapon metaphor that you use. It's, biological weapons could be difficult to develop, but once we develop them, some malicious troll gets their hands on them. They're upset with this, that, or the other agenda. They let it go and say, blah, ha, ha, goodbye, cruel world, all that kind of thing. But what about the person that says, well, I see all this suffering. I see all these trolls. Now I have a way to make it better, right? We could have artificial intelligence uh, manage our life so much better so that there's a lot more peace, right? This is the kind of the benevolent person. What would... What would you say to that person? And and let me rephrase this question a little bit. You see a a little bit of this in some of the folks that are talking about these, the guy who invented the singularity or or thought about the singularity, Elon Musk and some of these other folks that want to upload their, their big brains into the cloud or electronic sphere or whatever it might be so that it could benefit humans. If you had to sit down and have a conversation with them, and they're adamant about going forward with the singularity and uploading their brains. What would you tell them?
1: Oh, well, that's a great question. Yeah, I've been so I've been so focused on the, you know, the, the angry eighteen-year-old in his parents' basement. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, I mean, I I think after you know con- confessing my the, the the very low level of my knowledge about all this, I, I think I would say are you so sure that the results will be benevolent? You know, are you so sure that you can control the unintended consequences? Um, And are you so sure that you understand your own motives? Are you sure that you understand um, what kinds of suffering it is that you're trying to avoid? Um, I think that's probably all I could do. Um, You know... (laughs) There's the, the kind of canard that uh, professors are trying to change their, their students' politics right, and, and turn them all into uh, little, little Democratic activists or little Republican activists. But I think anyone who's actually spent any time behind the lectern knows that uh, people, in fact, just simply don't change their minds very easily, yeah. right? That, 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 that that's kind of a fantasy about something that, that someone might imagine is possible who has, hasn't actually ever spent much time teaching. Um, and so in that same way, You know, I have very modest faith in my ability to change what people believe or how they behave. And I've come to feel like the best thing that I can do is try to present an explanation of the way the world makes sense to me and to try to, uh, I mean, really almost from the kind of Christian pacifist, um, you know, lingo of... uh, bearing witness to the choices that other people are making. And, and not, I don't, I don't mean that in an aggressive way, you know, I don't mean sort of saying, Elon Musk, I see what you're doing, but rather saying, "I'm, you know, I'm a thoughtful thinking person here listening to you and taking you seriously, and, um, and I disagree with you, you know. And, and that's kind of a fact that now I think opens up the possibility for further discussion
0: yeah i think i would sit down and and talk to the the benevolent person, right, uh, and show him a bunch of 1970s movies that I watch. I say, see, none of this ever turns out good. Let's watch <laughs> Logan's Run
1: together, okay? Uh, That's just what I was thinking. That's exactly yeah. <laughs> the movie I had in mind. Yeah,
0: it's, which is one of my favorite movies, too, and this is why this stuff uh, sends to, uh, tends to uh, resonate so well, and I'm, I'm almost curious sometimes why uh, Logan's Run or a few of these other movies haven't been remade lately, because we just seem to be pump-primed at this point in time that it is. It's a near-future technology technology. I don't know how near the near future is. Yeah, it's, it's maybe time to bring up some of those movies once again. That'd be very interesting to, to do. So it's not just the 18-year-old malevolent kid in the basement, but it's the benevolent philosopher king that we often have to worry about as well. Let me ask this question to finish up. And usually we ask our guests, you know, to reflect upon the research that they've been doing and If anything has changed their mind, but this whole discussion has really been that. That's what makes your work and your writing so fascinating because it's a constant reflection and a, a process of development of your intellectual growth that we see here but you've presented this at a few conferences. You've given public lectures on this and it's, it's been out there floating around for a bit. It's not quite a book yet and it has to be a book. I think this is going to be a great book, but what kind of reactions have you received from other folks? Do they look at you and go, uh Oh, another oddball." what What are we going to do here? Or <laughs> is, is, is there a conversation really growing around this?
1: Well, it's been very interesting. So, um, you know, I've got a lot, of, a lot of different reactions. So I gave this as a talk at a, a local Buddhist group here in San Luis Obispo. They, you know, at, at, at their weekly meditation meeting, they usually have kind of a half hour or 45 minutes of discussion about teachings relevant to Buddhism, and they, they very generously invite me to come about once a year so to to do something completely off the wall. And uh, so this is what I, I presented this year. Uh, um, and the reaction was uh, they were... Super interested, and I think quite persuaded, um, and thought that this was a really important issue, and they wished that they were hearing more about it. Um, So that that was interesting. I I also gave a kind of earlier version of this at a political science conference last year, and in that one, I I worried a little bit more about issues of non sentient robots, and in particular about the ways in which they might lead to kind of interpersonal problems. and uh, it, it in particular, and without getting you know, t- too much into the graphic details, I was concerned about the way in which um, uh, realistic humanoid robots uh, might create problems in sexual relationships. Oh. And I was really playing up heavily the kind of dangers of that, you know, and my worry about it. And one thing that I found very interesting is that a lot of my colleagues, and actually particularly a lot of the women, who I spoke to said actually that strikes me that there's a lot that's potentially liberatory there uh, and a lot that's really potentially helpful. And so I've been, I've been, I really had to take a step back myself and say, okay, I can't just write a book about what's worrisome about all this. You know, I, I have to write a book about uh, about both sides, about what's encouraging about this and exciting about it you know, and why that might be something that we want to pursue and, and why it's something that I find so fascinating and exciting myself uh, and yet also about um, a kind of realistic and, and I think concrete discussion about what we might stand to lose. What I really don't want to do is write a book where at the end, you know, the last page, I say, but then we wouldn't be human. Uh, and that that's it. You know, I think to me that's kind of a meaningless uh, argument. Uh, it, it, it begs the question, well, why is human so great? You know, what, what, what's the what's the criterion for deciding that we should continue to be human the way we've been human so far? And so I'd rather say, uh, you know, you may wish to make this choice, but I think you're going to lose the ability to meditate. And I think that that may cause you problems down the line, you know, or I think you're going to you're going to risk this kind of problem with the employment structure or this kind of problem with romantic and sexual relationships. And so at least if you're going to make these choices, do it with your eyes open.
0: Well, you have certainly left us with a lot to meditate on and also Uh, increased our ability to do that as well. I recommend your previous book, Buddhism and Political Theory, and uh, we want to be following what you do with this research, because it is not only utterly fascinating, but it could be on the cutting edge of some of the most important stuff that we are seeing. My guest today has been Matthew Moore. Matt, thanks for being on Research on Religion.
1: Thanks so much for having me. It was really fun.
0: Thank you for listening to Research on Religion. To learn more about today's topic, participate in a discussion about what you've heard, or browse other podcasts, please visit our website at www.researchonreligion.org. And if you like what we're doing, please tell a friend. We'd appreciate the company. See you next week.